Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Mod Path Chat, the official podcast of Modern Pathology featuring interviews with authors and experts on the latest science, technology, and developments in the field of pathology. Your host, Dr. George Netto, is the editor-in-chief of Modern Pathology and the chair of pathology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Here's Dr. Netto. Welcome to a new episode of ModPass Chat. I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Dr. Inti Zlobeck. She is a professor of digital pathology at the Institute of Pathology of the University of Bern. Professor Zlobeck is an international expert in the field of artificial intelligence and machine learning. She is the co-founder and president of the Swiss Consortium for Digital Pathology and currently serves as chair of the European Society of Pathology IT Working Group. Dr. Zlobeck is here today to discuss her team's exciting recent publication in Modern Pathology on the role of image-based analysis in predicting consensus molecular subtypes of colorectal carcinoma. Thank you, Dr. Zlobeck, for joining me today. Dr. Neto, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's a pleasure. Please just call me George. And uh, this is, as we discussed, uh, is informal, and I'm sure our audience are uh, are going to enjoy every bit of it. So let's start. So the paper uh, appeared in Modern Path and uh, yeah, clearly with uh, talented collaborators. Uh, and uh, in a way of a background, just let us uh, tell us about this consensus molecular subtypes. And I know the focus is on mucinous and the relationship to MSI. So just mm -hmm. to set the stage. Perfect. Um, so actually, we started this project very interested in microsatellite instability um, to begin with. And the idea originally was to be able to actually look into the features of microsatellite instable colorectal cancers that could potentially be predicted from the image. So from a histopathology image. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, there's some fantastic work by Cather and other groups who have now really you know, dived uh, deep or dove deep into, into this topic. And we wanted to go a little bit further. The consensus molecular subtypes are basically considered to be four major molecular subgroups of colorectal cancer. There is also, of course, an undefined group. But let's say four major groups. Mm -hmm. And group number one, the CMS1, is primarily consisting of this microsatellite instability. So about 80%, if not more, of CMS1 is an MSI group. So obviously, MSI is a very important feature. There are, of course, other subgroups, CMS2, which is basically this canonical WINT deregulation pathway that we know of with colorectal cancer. 
The CMS3 is a very metabolically active group. And the CMS4 is a group with a lot of stromal infiltration, showing a lot of EMT or epithelial mesenchymal transition related proteins and so on. Um, and a lot of what, well, we believe uh, tumor budding. So that's kind of a topic that we're all uh, basically studying in the group. And so we wanted to look at microsatellite instability in particular and see how that correlated to the CMS groups and also look at certain features. Mucin, we were very interested in mucin because many years ago, Jeremy Jass, uh, perhaps some of your, uh, your audience will remember who Jeremy Jass was. Um, Jeremy Jass was actually one of the first people, I think, to look at trying to quantify different features within colon cancers to predict just from the image or just from the slide, the MSI status. And one of those features that he said could be very much related to MSI is mucin. So the presence of mucinous histology was very much correlated to microsatellite instability. So we thought, well, why not try to understand mucin a little bit better and the correlation or relationship between mucinous histology and the CMS subtypes. Of course, we were sort of expecting it to be related to microsatellite instability, but who knows? Mm -hmm. so, um, so that and was basically- And just, just yeah. to step back, mucinous and MSI is not one-to-one -one correlation. You can-, you can So this is one of the points exactly that popped out of this study, but now we really have some quantifiable data to show that, mm -hmm. that in fact, uh, mucin is of course a feature of MSI, but is not only related to MSI. Sorry. Um, and in the end, um, what our study was really showing is that when we were going- uh, when we were using these publicly available data sets, including TCGA, to sort of study mucin histology um, and make the correlations with the CMS groups, um, we found something very interesting, which, which was that the CMS2 subtype was basically never mucin. It had no mucin, 0%, almost 0% mucin. Um, this was interesting to us because the CMS classifications were really based on genomic data. So you needed to be able, if you wanted to replicate that, you needed to perform very inten intensive, resource uh, uh, extensive um, analysis of, of the genome Absolutely. to be able to classify colorectal cancers into these four groups. And we were sort of aiming to try to do that in a much more easy way, namely from the image. And so one of those features, mucin, showed us that we could actually exclude the CMS2 subtype if we found mucin um, in the tumor. Excellent. And, uh, and the significance, is there a prognostic significance for, for that uh, exclusion? So this is still a very interesting problem when it comes to mucinous histology, because I think there is really an open question mark about the true, let's say, prognostic impact or even predictive impact of, um, of those kinds of tumors. And maybe it's more heterogeneous than we assume. However, um, the CMS classifications, one of the reasons why that's so important is because we do see, or there is a prognostic difference between those, um, those classifications that were really meant to be biological, biological classifications, mm -hmm. um, but may also have an impact on therapy. So therapy responsiveness and how that's linked to the CMS groups is really now also coming out as a very important factor. So is it possible to classify colorectal cancers into these groups and therefore also use that as complementary information for, um, for therapy? Definitely. Wonderful. Which is, which is, there is always a theme, you know, my, my interest is bladder cancer until now. Okay, we have that taxonomy, but this is too expensive to do. Can we replace it with markers? And here you're trying to, uh, even uh, an easier 
easier after you have the algorithm. H and E image. Penises. Just look at the H and E with the machine learning <laughs> and, and exactly. tell us which subtype, uh, which is uh, really uh, amazing when you think about it, because phenotype is the ultimate expression of the H and E is the ultimate expression of your genotype. We believe uh, that too, exactly. And so, so one that's, thing that sorry, please go ahead. Sorry. So that's so what you that, did. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I think we're having a deal. Please go ahead. It's because you're in Switzerland and, and uh, never here. So I apologize. Yeah. So, so that's, that's when we want to talk a little bit, uh, you know, what is the algorithm uh, without going into too much technical details? Uh, so how does it work? What does it identify? You know, uh, I saw some beautiful images in figure one, uh, where it's segment and, and, and all that stuff. And you applied it to what kind of cohort and what did exactly. Apply? So I'm glad to explain that. So really the first thing that we wanted to do in order to get a large number of tumors, let's say, um, quantified for the mucin or extracellular mucin to tumor ratio, which is sort of the basis of, of this whole story. We didn't want to do this by eyeballing. In fact, we know that this sort of cutoff of more than 50% extracellular mucin to tumor ratio is maybe not always so easy to identify. Um, so what we thought to do is actually create an algorithm which would allow us to actually detect and quantify the area of mucin in a standard H&E slide. But the first point that we really wanted to do was actually uh, compare our algorithm, which we developed on a subset of uh, I think it was only about 150 patients at the beginning. We wanted to correlate that with the actual pathologist's exact percentage of mucin um, to tumor ratio. So not saying yes, no, but really giving the quantity of what they thought was the mucinous area within the tumor. We were very interested in this. We actually engaged two of our pathologists in-house. So we took ourselves out of the equation. We gave mm -hmm. them 149, I believe it was, something like this, slides to evaluate, to compare within 5% grades, let's say, so 5%, 10%, 90%. And we said, what do you think is the percentage of mucin in this, uh, in this tumor? And uh, the comparison between our algorithm and, uh, and the pathologist scores were so greatly correlated to each other on this small group of, of 149, I think, tumor, tumors that we had originally evaluated that we thought, well, this is now uh, uh, an incredible thing that we can now apply to a much larger cohort. So we applied that to our own cohort of in-house slides. That was another, mm -hmm. I think, 800 or something like this. Correct. And to the TCGA, so the publicly available um, data set that everybody knows. And we applied it there. Um, and in that case, of course, we were able to make the correlation between the actual percentage of mucin that we find in the tumor and the CMS groups, the MSI, the outcome, and so on. Um, so, so that's basically what we did in the first step is, of course, like everywhere, we needed to collect some ground truth. So we need to know what is exactly mucin? How can we train an algorithm to actually look for mucin? Mm -hmm. um, and there are different ways of doing this. Sometimes you need to be very, very precise with what you are annotating. Other so times, you circle on the slide. That's exactly. So that's somehow the let's say the dirty work, the dirty mm -hmm. work um, that that nobody loves to do, and that's exactly one of the, um, the the things that our group is actually working on is trying to come up with other kinds of methods that would reduce the amount of labels or annotations that are needed by pathologists to make in order to still produce excellent performing algorithms. Um, so that's somehow one one big big area of interest and also of 
I would say, of research around the world into digital pathology is how to not bore our pathologists with making these annotations, um, but do it in a very correct uh, way. Um, and, so we and use the great. Sorry, and get the great correlation that you did. I mean, you mentioned 92%, 0.92, amazing correlation. So with with not so much annotation from the pathologist when you develop that. And that's that's a key because there's, think about it, there are so many features that we can develop algorithm. And if each one is going to take a lot of uh, laborious work to do this, uh, it, it can be prohibitive. So excellent. And and I noticed that uh, just to complete, you know, the description of the study that you did a few markers, uh, TMA by uh, amino and uh, and uh, MUC, these MUCs that I can never yes. remember, <laughs> MUC 2, 4, 5 AC. Uh, so that, that also helped and uh, correlated with the classification. And in fact, this was maybe the most interesting finding for us because we saw that Mucin was almost absent in tumors that fit into the CMS2 classification. But one way that we could even further validate that is to actually look at the gene expression level of certain mucin-producing genes, because it should correlate as well to having a very low uh, mRNA expression in CMS2. So that's what we could actually, we could actually validate our histological findings and the fact that we had very low mucin in that group with the genomic findings of the TCGA. And even better, we used an additional publicly available data set called CPTAC, mm -hmm. which um, actually we didn't use the images for that, but they have the CMS classifications and the proteomic analysis of the mucin proteins. So we again could find that in the CMS2, those proteins were again, basically oh. absent in the CMS2. So we had the protein, the genomic, our own histology, and, and this was such a beautiful package that just fit together to confirm these findings of that CMS classification. Excellent. I, I love uh, the excitement about, about the study, that you, the way you describe it. This is wonderful. So, so basically, what is uh, the take-home message? This, this algorithm could be uh, available and we start uh, down the road applying it to cases where we think it's mucinous versus not and, and use it in lieu of doing genomics? Or? So in fact, on the one hand, pathologists are excellent at, you know, in comparison to our algorithm. I don't think that it's necessary for pathologists to use it to identify the percentage of mucin. This is done perfectly. That's not the point. Mm -hmm. But it does show us that mucin seems to be a very important factor in discriminating between the CMS classification. And I do believe that is maybe only one branch in maybe a decision tree of other factors that might lead us to uh, an approach to identify these CMS groups without having to do this major genomic analysis. And so, so you just estimate the mucin together with MSI and you'll be able to place. Uh, yes, and very likely some other factors as well. But I think at the end, we might have an H&E solution for evaluating the CMS classification. That's awesome. I hope uh, you guys, maybe we should collaborate. You do the same on bladder and, and uh -huh. <laughs> take us, take us somewhere. Well, uh, this, this has been really uh, 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 very enjoyable and informative. Uh, and I thank you, Dr. Zlobek, for accepting to be our guest. I know uh, it's uh, not easy across continents, uh, but uh, thank you very much. And uh, for our audience, as, uh, as I always say, uh, please, we value your input. Uh, so if you have any suggestions, please provide us uh, using our email at journals at uscap.org. That's journals, plural, at uscap.org. And uh, thanks again. 
Dr. Zilbert. Thank you as well. Any opinions expressed in this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the views of modern pathology, Springer Nature, UAB, or USCAP. Your ModPath chat host and scientific director is Dr. George Netto. Producers are Christina Crow, Amber Jackson, Dr. Sarah Jang, and Dr. Catherine Ketchum. Technical direction is provided by Kaminsky Productions, music by Mitch Neubauer. Thanks to the authors, reviewers, and editors of Modern Pathology for making this podcast possible.